Whether people menacing female Christian authors with rape and death threats are Christians if they identified themselves. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and this is the first time back with a Walk the Earth episode since December. I believe at the time I recorded that December show, uh, sort of in the aftermath of the political elections in the United States last year, that I predicted I might need some time off, and I took that time off. For anyone who listens to both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, you certainly know how I use that time. I spent a lot of time with music, first finding a happy place, and then finding the voice of the music of protest to sort of express my disappointment in things which have happened here recently in this country, one of which I want to look at today from the perspective of Walk the Earth. But first, it makes sense to discuss the hiatus a little bit, because it wasn't really initially planned. I think maybe if things in my personal life, uh, illnesses, uh, deaths in the family, had played out differently, then maybe Walk the Earth would not have taken a break. But the questions that occupied my mind from, say, October until now were more personal in nature, uh, dealing with, and still perhaps dealing with, a grieving process. But it is fair to say that the original vision for Walk the Earth probably wasn't that this would be an ongoing podcast like Inappropriate Conversations, I believe, is. Uh, The purpose of it was to say my family is going to move from a church that we've been attending for more than, say, 14 or 15 years and probably switch denominations at the same time. And switching denominations was a big deal because, for me, this was the first denomination that I chose This was a church that I'd been participating in from a denominational perspective my entire life. And saying, we have to leave here, this situation is not healthy, was a really big deal. And when I was mapping out the original Walk the Earth, I didn't have, say, 21 questions right from the start. But it was really clear to me from the beginning, say from August of 2013 through December of 2014, that that was sort of the arc I wanted to be on. And when I got to that question of December of that year which, as I recall, was whether church needed to be in a church or could it simply be serving in a food bank or soup kitchen or some other form of nonprofit, that if I didn't have a new church home by the time I got to that question, that that would be the crucial question with the crucial answer. Now, I don't manage any of the podcasts I'm a part of with the notion of seasons. I've seen this happen a lot lately where shows talk about having uh, set seasons and pre-planned breaks and That's never really been the way I've done it. I'm going to continue numbering inappropriate conversations up and up, and I'll keep numbering the questions uh, on Walk the Earth the same way. But it might be fair to say that in that December 2014 time frame, I did come to an end of what I thought was an arc of questions. And in January, I began a brand new arc. That one lasted from January 2015 till the December show that I talked about uh, at the beginning, uh, looking at the question of whether or not It was even still possible to consider yourself part of the collective body of Christ if 80% of evangelical Christians clearly don't think character matters anymore in leadership decisions. 
if I can't trust fellow Christians to make wise, morality-based leadership decisions about the President of the United States, when they've talked nonstop about how important that is for four decades now, then maybe we shouldn't trust them when it comes to questions related to pastors and bishops and deacons and even Sunday school teachers, that if they don't have a clear understanding of what character means uh, in a national setting, then probably is an indication that there's something wrong at a much more local setting, like a church. And with that question lingering in the air, I took another break. But this is not a one-off. I know there's at least one more question that I've got planned for the summertime. I don't know that I'll be on a monthly cadence because I'm not sitting on a set of questions that are kind of simmering and getting ready to boil. But it's not just one and done. The other thing I will say is that everything else is the same as it was despite the hiatus. Walk the Earth is still a podcast. It will still appear on the same RSS feed with inappropriate conversations. Both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Among the other things that I've been dealing with here this year was that I did have a few website-related issues um, during the year, and those have been resolved now. I think probably the navigation on the website at inappropriateconversations.org is as good as it's ever been. It is essentially a place where I post podcasts, but I also put blog posts there as well. Blog posts appear under the category menu in the right navigation bar as articles. There also is another navigation there for intro, which would be promoting future topics or the very first couple of shows in the series. The rest of those categories are ways on inappropriate conversations to find different drummers based on what their uh, their level of inspiration is. Were they music? Were they authors? Theologians? So that's kind of how the category index works. But on the header bar, next to Inappropriate Conversations as a header, there's an About page. That's for Inappropriate Conversations. There's also a Walk the Earth page, and that is a place to find out, well, the intro I've just done for Walk the Earth, but also a Category Index, which is sort of a shortcut to filter out all the Inappropriate Conversations and just get a menu of Walk the Earth episodes in descending order from most recent back to the very beginning. And last but not least, there's other pages at the website There's also a link for Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food, which is an essay that predates the existence of the Walk the Earth podcast, but is very much in sync with the Walk the Earth podcast. So you you can interact with Walk the Earth. On Facebook, there's a page just for Walk the Earth. On Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg, and I interact there on behalf of both podcasts, as well as in my personal life and for other interests that I've got. I make a habit of retreating other shows that I listen to or that I intend to be listening to. So there's also sort of a podcast directory happening on my Twitter feed as well. The other way to interact with me, and I thought I'd bring it up as a segue into the question, is SoundCloud. Since the last time I made a recording, I have reached the point in posting SoundCloud clips of past podcasts chronologically to where I've finally gotten into the 2013 sphere and reached Walk the Earth. My approach for posting clips of Walk the Earth on SoundCloud is different and perhaps better than what I've been doing with Inappropriate Conversations, so I'll briefly explain both. With Inappropriate Conversations, I've been trying to find a clip. It could be a couple of minutes, it could be 30, 40, 50 minutes, but a clip that represents the show. So if somebody wanted to go to the podcast uh, at the website and play the episode there or uh, by some other means then you'd have a sense of what it was about, sort of an audio blurb, an audio hint. With Walk the Earth, I've taken a different approach. I've been posting onto SoundCloud everything after the question, so not including the question, and before the closing prayer. 
So essentially, you could think of the Walk the Earth blurbs on SoundCloud as being the answer, meaning that they're fairly substantial in length. It's most of the shows kind of cutting off the header and the footer, if you will. And I'm coming up to the point of very soon being ready to post, again, in chronological order, getting to December of 2013, where among my next shared files on SoundCloud will be Walk the Earth 6, whether gender plays a role in the experience of worship. And Inappropriate Conversations 134, the next show after it, uh, just titled Gender Segregation. Both of them looking at some of the same questions in terms of the role of women in the church, mistakes that Christianity has made in the past, Roman Catholicism in particular, regarding biblical interpretation and how that has had an impact over centuries now of the role of women in the church. And one of the key authors that I referred to at the time is Sarah Bessie. So this is not the first time I've spoken specifically about Sarah Bessie on either an Inappropriate Conversations or Walk the Earth podcast, but she is well and truly the direct inspiration for the question that we're facing today. I could actually reword the question if I chose to, to ask whether people who are menacing Sarah Bessie with rape and death threats are Christians. If they bothered to identify themselves, would they identify themselves as Christians? Well, that's a question that begs maybe more than just a few questions. So before I get to the answer, which I think to me is both obvious and perhaps a blind spot for a lot of people uh, across the political spectrum when it comes to Christianity and politics. So I'm not even just pointing a finger at the religious right, who I think are truly blind to this question. But I'm also pointing a figure to centrists and to people who are on the political left and Christian who have never really asked themselves this, either because they just take it for granted and they don't think it's something to dwell on, or because they never really stopped and said, hang on a second, if somebody is actually threatening an act of physical violence or a pretend sort of a menacing act of violence against a female Christian author to shut her up, put her in her place, well, who are those people and why? I'll let that question linger in the air for a bit, because it does require some backstory. And I will be quoting Bessie quite a bit, not from one of her books per se, but from her social media presence, because this story was triggered completely unintentionally by her. But first, maybe the obvious question is, who is Sarah Bessie? And I won't go into a ton of detail here. She has a website, sarahbessie.com. It's got a Meet Sarah page. So there's ways you can find out more yourself about her. But she's a she's a Canadian um, and married to an American, or maybe she's Canadian-American, depending on how you look at it. And I've encountered her as an author. If I were going to be citing her as a different drummer at some point, I'd probably put categories for her for both books and theology, that I know her as a Christian author. And coincidentally, perhaps, but central to this question, a female Christian author. Here's quoting her from her own website, just to give a little bit of background from the perspective of books and theology. I wrote a book called Out of Sorts, Howard Books, published 2015, and it's about making peace with an evolving faith. It's my way of leaving the light on for those who are wandering and wondering in their faith or spiritual journey. If you feel a bit out of sorts, a bit like you're caught between what you once were but not quite sure where you're headed yet, then it's the book that will give you permission to lean into that pain, to explore your questions, to learn you're not alone. I also wrote a little yellow book called Jesus Feminist. That's the one that I referred to. She wrote it a couple of years ago. I referred to it in a podcast a couple of years ago. It's not really a book about Christian feminist theory. 
I see it as a book about the kingdom of God and what life looks like when you live into the other side of so many of our missing-the-point gender debates in the church. My third book, she says, title still unannounced, will be out March of 2018. I expect that March of next year, I will take an interest in this book, because this is an author who I've taken maybe a casual, maybe more than a casual interest in over time. Now, here's the part where I'm going to get the story just a little bit wrong. Uh, or if I get it right, I'm getting it right purely by coincidence. Because I'm going to go from memory here, because I'm not 100% sure that the backstory itself matters. The specifics, the details, uh, the time. Except to say that everything I'm going to describe happened pretty much April of this year. Meaning that from a Walk the Earth perspective, we're talking about current events. Many Walk the Earth questions delve into things which go back centuries. So just a couple of months ago feels really recent to me. And to be honest... These events just a couple of months ago raised the questions which resurfaced the need, in my opinion, for a Walk the Earth podcast. So, here's the story. I imagine Bessie sitting in a waiting area at an airport about to get on a plane, heading toward a conference that she had previously slated to attend. And if not a little tired while waiting to get on the plane, you can imagine she'd be a little bit tired after a long flight getting back off the plane yeah, you collect your luggage, you, you take a bus or a cab or something, you get to a hotel, you check in. It's a fairly elaborate process to uh, prepare yourself to be an active participant in a conference. And one big chunk of that is the travel itself. I was kind of amused the last time I traveled. I don't remember whether the airline was United or American, but one of them had greatly expanded their list of choices for boarding zones. I can remember back when there was just maybe two or three of them, or maybe a first class plus two or three, four tops. And now this particular airline had expanded themselves into what felt like 10 different choices. But most of the choices, they would call out for people who had that zone on their boarding pass, and no one had that zone. So they expanded from one to at least eight, but zones two and three, there was nobody with that zone, because I think the airlines are still trying to figure out how they can monetize things like uh, not just baggage, luggage, but, but even getting on the plane itself. And I, I look around in confusion when I'm in these uh, airline waiting areas. First off, at people who get a little antsy with each other over their place in line. And so this this is not a Disney theme park ride. I don't need to be the first to sit in an uncomfortable chair next to people I don't know for hours and hours. I'm not a, anxious to add a few more minutes to that particular experience. The chair in the airline airport waiting area may not be the most comfortable seat in the world, but it's probably orders of magnitude more comfortable than a completely packed airplane. And yet the airline believes, and maybe it's true, that some people would actually be willing to spend more money, five more dollars, ten more dollars, for the right to get into that uncomfortable situation first slash early. Yeah, I don't get it. So after going through that uh, waiting period, Bessie, on her phone, on Twitter, reading things, interacting, and encountering a hashtag that was things only women here or things only women writers here. And a kind of light bulb popped up casually as she describes it in her head and said, you know what, yeah, maybe a better question is things only Christian women here or things only Christian women writers here. Almost as a joke, almost as an aside. She did not expect hours later when she finally... Uh, checked in and tapped into the Wi-Fi at the hotel and opened up her Twitter that she would have a you know, bazillion responses to that hashtag, that her Twitter would have literally blown up at a viral hashtag where she wasn't in any way whatsoever 
trying to be viral. Perhaps trying to be flippant, humorous, and even provocative, but not necessarily trying to be viral. But she tapped into a vein, and while she was in the air and unplugged, literally in the clouds, but not in the cloud, hundreds of women, thousands of women, climbed in, responding to that hashtag, and shared things that they have heard, things which probably are inappropriate more often than not. And I'll share just a couple, because this hashtag is not dead yet. It's still alive and kicking. Uh, Just for the last, say, few days, here's one. Um, Could you volunteer more at church, someone asked. My response, I need a job that pays money. I'm single. Oh, you should just get married. Things only Christian women hear. You're an attractive enough woman. You should use that God-given gift to attract men to our church. Hashtag pimping for Christ. Hashtag things only Christian women hear. There's more. That's just recently. This hashtag has never really gone away since it was uh, birthed by Sarah Bessie so casually at the end of April. You better cover up or you'll make the boys sin. That sort of thing. So what I want to focus on is not so much um, a Twitter feed with a, a perfect example of a viral hashtag bringing an entire worldwide community together to speak to an issue. Some positively, some negatively, some tossing out anecdotes. I want to talk about the backlash instead. And to do so, I want to quote Bessie maybe in three different ways. I'll do a couple of them right up front, and then I want to save the last one for maybe the last to try to offer a more positive kind of spin. Offering solutions maybe sometimes and not just the problems, trying to end on a positive note. That has been a theme this year in Inappropriate Conversations, and I might as well bring a little bit of it to walk the earth. But in between the first couple of quotes from Bessie I want to share, her response to her surprise to this hashtag blowing up, I also want to answer our question today, and I don't want to lose sight of it. But first, let's cue up the question with what she wrote on uh, in a newsletter that readers like me get uh, on April 20th. So for the sake of argument, say it was only the 18th or 19th, probably the 19th, that this entire Twitter exchange initially started, on the 20th, Sarah Bessie wrote to a group of committed readers who are part of her email newsletter group with these words. When I finally checked into my hotel, I was a bit overwhelmed by how the hashtag had spun out. Women sharing their experiences, men affirming them, then the alt-right trolling it, others pushing back on it, and on it went. My mentions were out of control. I had an email inbox filled with threats of rape and violence interview requests, and so many painful personal stories from readers. As I have sat here reading through the tweets and the posts, the emails, and even the news stories, and my personal favorite take, maybe it was a publicity stunt to drive up sales of her book or garner more Twitter followers. There isn't an eye roll gift sufficient for that. I find I have a few more thoughts. The thing is that this particular conversation is coming on the heels of some difficult offline conversations for me, too. I've been engaged in some issues of disagreement with people I love over theology and how to move forward together, or not, and it sucks. It's been disheartening, discouraging, and hurtful for all of us, I think. And for me, these aren't side issues, because we're not talking about secondary issues when we're talking about people. Each one is precious, and each one is made in the image of God. That is Cerebesi on what we might call the day after the uh, viral event. And the thing I want to focus on is a sentence kind of casually tucked in the first of three paragraphs and not really mentioned again, and I think perhaps as a defense mechanism, but I'm going to read it again here because it is the source of my question today. 
Bessie writes, I had an email inbox filled with threats of rape and violence. These were not threats of rape and violence toward some enemy in a far-off country during a time of war. This was threats of rape and violence directed from angry email writers to Sarah Bessie about Sarah Bessie. And if that weren't disturbing enough, my question is, who would have taken the time to write those emails? And how would they have described themselves? And if we don't want to engage in a no-true-Scotsman fallacy, because that is at least a cul-de-sac, if not a dead end, and just say, well, they couldn't possibly be Christian men because they're not true Christians if they do that, that's a logical fallacy. Recognize it for what it is and try to stop committing it. Or at least, follow my lead and call it out when you know you're going to do it. But, no. The bottom line is, how would the writers of those emails perceive themselves? And I think that we will find that the theme song for them may as well be Onward Christian Soldiers. I'm quite sure that these are men, mostly, but could be some women, who perceive themselves as Christian, who identify with not just the radical right and the religious right, but the alt-right, who were using these threats as a means of silencing somebody that they believe the Bible tells them has no business speaking on behalf of Christians anyway. So, that was Sarah Bessie on April 20th of this year. I want to jump down and talk to what she wrote on a Facebook status, I believe, April 26th. So a few days later, with a little bit more time to think, and let me just kind of, this is her dealing with the people who are not the source of my question today. So there might have been some, you know, illegitimate pushback, I guess I would call it. People from within the church who are challenging some of her assumptions and uh, challenging the things that people had shared by jumping onto that hashtag. And those are perhaps... You know, criticisms that are worth the time to answer as debate, as a logical argument that deserves and needs a response. Whereas I don't think that a death threat or a rape threat deserves any sort of response other than scorn and ridicule. But we will get back to the death and rape threats in a minute because those are deserving of scorn and ridicule. And I will tell you honestly, I've heard none. Not even from Bessie, I think is probably intentionally trying to take the high ground here, but I am the first person I'm aware of, and I don't read comments sections on news stories. So maybe there's a lot of good Christian people defending Sarah Bessie in in that way. I think that's sort of, that's troll central. I don't think that's a place I want to play. No, I would say as publicly as a podcast or a news story or an article on Christianity Today or some other website, I'm not hearing people raise the concerns I'm raising in the manner that I am and pointing the necessary accusing finger at people who Again, identify themselves as Christians and are threatening to rape a Christian woman to shut her up. That's a problem. To the in-house side of the debate. To people that don't need a no-to-Christian fallacy. Because I think most Christians uh, would accept that these are challenges that were made to the dialogue that was created on Twitter. Who truly are, uh, in any conceivable way, speaking on behalf of Christianity in a formal manner. They might have different views than I do about theology or even the Bible. But they identify as Christians, and I don't know very many Christians who say, well, they're not really. No. Here's what Bessie wrote. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'll start at the beginning of her Facebook post on April 26th. I want to take a moment to respond to some of the criticism and pushback that the Things Only Christian Women Hear viral conversation has received over the past few days. Some criticism has been warranted. For instance, the conversation centered around white voices and experiences over women of color. 
So the spinoffs, like Things Only Black Christian Women Here and Things Black Christian Women Here, are must-read for all of us. I hope you'll head over to Twitter and check out those two hashtags with an open heart to learn. However, the majority of the criticism has been that it's not right for us to have the conversation publicly, and that the, the participants are bitter, or whiny, or enabling a victim mentality. And then some people will try to turn over the conversation with lovely, affirming, positive stories of their experiences in the church, effectively saying, what's with all these whiny women? I have it just fine. I encourage you to pause that immediate defensive response for a moment and open your heart and your mind and your ears, because you missed the point of the things only Christian women hear entirely. And that response is dismissive and enabling at best, silencing and abusive and dangerous at worst. Oh, there's a place to tell the beautiful and affirming stories of being a woman in the church, and I'll be first in that line, Bessie says. I love the church with my whole heart, and my personal story is actually empowering and encouraging. But our immediate response of not all churches and not all men isn't helpful or necessary, and I'll tell you why. Things only Christian women here, and its spinoffs, gave women who were routinely minimized, silenced, marginalized, dismissed, oppressed, etc., a safe place to voice that experience. For some women, it was the first time they were able to articulate that and feel understood or heard. So the things that women who are experiencing in the church obviously exist, regardless of whether or not they exist for you personally. But I just want to stop right there. Let's restate that. And let's take this even up a few thousand feet and look at a broader piece of the world and say this as it applies to the experience of black people interacting with law enforcement or our judicial system, for example, or gays and lesbians. The things which these women were talking about on this Twitter hashtag obviously exist in the church, whether they exist for you and your personal experience of the church or not. And making a claim that it wasn't your experience, therefore it didn't happen, is anti-Christ. It denies truth. It does the opposite of what Jesus modeled by walking into the lives of people and walking side by side with them, lifting them up if need be, healing their blindness so that they could see more clearly and look into his eyes and hear what he had to say, engaging, not denying that I'm not blind, therefore how could you possibly be? The story I've told about this in the past is, what if a very quiet, perhaps even deaf-mute bank robber walked into a bank, and I'm standing in one line in front of a teller, and this bank robber's standing in the other line for another teller, and hands her, uh, just in writing, a very menacing, threatening note requiring her to get the money, or I'll detonate the bomb, or I'll shoot everybody in the room, or what have you. Doesn't say a word. I didn't hear him. The, the note also exists that she execute this plan in a way that looks like it's just any other transaction, any other deposit. He needs to come in, give her a note, get the note back, get maybe a briefcase full of money or something, and leave like he did nothing more than transact a simple business request. Maybe he goes in, you know, wearing a uniform of a, of a retail, like a, a McDonald's store manager or something, with a petty cash bag or something, where it looks like he's just bringing in the deposits and taking out some petty cash or something like that. And if I'm standing right next to him and have no idea that that was a bank robbery, does it, on an ontological level, change the fact that a bank robbery took place? If the bank robbery was not something that I was personally aware of, that does not change the fact that it happened. So let's go back to Bessie and her Facebook paste. I'll restate the sentence again because I think it's important. I'll finish the paragraph. 
So the things that women are experiencing in the church obviously exist, regardless of whether or not they exist for you personally. It's what we call a systemic or institutional problem. It's part of the fabric of how we roll as the church, it seems, and it's worth noting. And let me assure you, the responses are coming from everywhere, with very little regard for denomination, church style, church background, age, geography. The hashtag transcends all our categories. And so don't come in with your, but that doesn't happen here with us, protests. Some places are more explicit or implicit, but it does happen, and it is happening. The other thing I want to say is that we have got to learn the difference between attacking the church and attacking the lie that has a hold on the church. The problem isn't exposing the problem. The problem is the problem. Talking about sexism or misogyny in the church isn't the problem. The sexism and misogyny is the problem. You see? Nobody is attacking the church. In fact, the majority of these women are showing up precisely because they love the church. What we are attacking is the spirit of patriarchy, that oppressive and dangerous system that has a death grip on the throat of the beautiful bride of Christ. We are seeking to untangle the bride of Christ from the unholy, toxic, insidious lie of patriarchy because we love her. We can't coddle such lies. We have to name them for what they are. We love Jesus, and we love each other, and we want to heal the cancer that is eating us. I'll give her the last word on this section, come back with one more post that she put online a little bit later, but I'll just say that my agreement with Bessie is simply this. We're called as Christians to love Jesus with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, and if we're not allowed to ask tough questions, we are not loving Jesus with all of our minds. If we are conflating ideas like fatherhood and patriarchy and putting tone-deaf posts online about, you know, happy Father's Day, up the patriarchy, we're not paying attention. We have shut our minds down to questions. We're not listening. And some of the people, not all of them, but some of the people who've shut their minds down to the questions have decided that they needed to shut Sarah Bessie down as well. And that maybe they can accomplish that the way the alt-right on the political side of the spectrum accomplished it with a National Review editor by threatening his family and his wife until he stopped writing stories that were critical of Donald Trump. That's a National Review magazine senior contributor. This is a conservative publication that, I think rightly, during the 2016 political campaign, felt that Donald Trump was not the answer for representing the movement or the GOP as a political party. And the response from what we are calling the alt-right today, the response from white supremacists, was to threaten to rape his wife, threaten to kidnap his kids, threaten anything to get him to be too afraid to write more stories that were critical of their point of view. So were those, in the conspiracy-minded theories of some people, a bunch of you know radical left liberals masquerading as conservatives and threatening this guy? And I think that answer is completely ridiculous. Uh, most of the people that I know who are far more left than I am we're delighted that an editor from the National Review was speaking some of the same criticisms about Donald Trump that most of the center and all of the, the left wing of our political spectrum were. They weren't interested in shutting him down. There was no advantage in him stopping his train of thought and writing different articles in a different way. No, these were coming from inside the house. The, the dangerous phone call was coming from inside the house, so to speak. It was politically conservative people 
who didn't like another politically conservative person, not agreeing with them about everything. To quote Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys, agree with us on everything or we won't help with anything. From the Bedtime for Democracy album, the last real album that the Dead Kennedys released with the full band, including Biafra, intact. The last studio album, anyway. So no, this is the same situation. When Bessie is sort of casually and trying to diminish because of probably legitimate fear, an email inbox filled with threats of rape and violence, I think we need to, as Christians, ask ourselves the question of where those threats are coming from. I think the answer is just as obvious as it was in the political sphere, with the National Review case in 2016, that the threats are coming from inside the House. Our question today is whether people menacing female Christian authors with rape and death threats are Christians, or at least are Christians if you ask them to identify themselves. Two things going on in this question. This isn't just Sarah Bessie. I'm using her as an example, because she in some ways had the courage to send an email newsletter out and share this really ugly fact. But it's not just her. Rachel Held Evans, others. I I guarantee there's probably any list of female authors you're going to find, if not directly, in email, then through more social media means like uh, comments to news stories or um, spam to the website or Facebook or Twitter or somewhere else, threats of raping you to shut you up. I will kill you if you don't stop talking about this. That kind of line of thought. I made a reference uh, in the first year, I think, of inappropriate conversations in the city that I live in. There was a rape away the gay movement being pushed by one of these sort of, I used to think, fringe right-wing conservative Christian pastors. But come on, if you're a Christian pastor, are you really fringe? And of course you're right-wing, but we just elected Donald Trump. And if you look at the people that he's put in some of his key cabinet positions and the people that they have historically worked for and with, they're these same kind of folks. People who view Christianity as some of some sort of American historical civic religion, a flag we fly, a banner we wave, that it's less about that Jew Jesus and more about this Bible and its book of rules that give me the ability to divide, divide who the good people are and who the bad people are. I'm going to go in a politically incorrect direction here because I haven't figured out how to share this on either a blog post or on Twitter. I, I just can't do it in 140 characters, but there's a uh, a somewhat fringe, it's not a, a mainstream sexual concept of of topping and bottoming. It's a in some de- to some degree in, in the heterosexual side of the world, it's a BDSM kind of concept. And over in the, in the homosexual side of the world, it's sort of a uh, well, it's a sex position question of of topping and bottoming. And there's an idea out there called power bottom, and it has more than one urban dictionary definition. But the one I read basically talks about somebody who is in uh, from an outward glance the uh, submissive position in the relationship, not the top, definitely the bottom, but one who from that bottom position is dictating things, is is leading things, is controlling everything. In that case, in a BDSM sense, it's probably not there's just a safe word there to control things. It's probably that this person is truly driving everything and the top is pretending to be a top or what have you. I realize that's stronger sexual content than you'd expect normally from Walk the Earth, But I'm wondering if the relationship between the religious right and the Lord Almighty isn't that the religious right has somehow told itself that they're the power bottom in this relationship. That they've got the ability to tell the good Lord Almighty what he meant, what Jesus 
is allowed to think and what Jesus is not allowed to think. And because they've got the Bible, they've got a book full of safe words that they can use to take it just one step further and say, well, hey, parts of the Old Testament condemn this group of people, and Paul wasn't really happy with that group of people. Therefore, I, as the religious right power bottom, have been given the right to, on behalf of my top, um, onward Christian soldiers, the Lord God Almighty, personally cast some people into hell or make their life on earth a living hell because I've been given the power to do this by the words in a book. And if Jesus didn't speak the words I'm speaking, you know what? We know who's really in charge here. Is it the top in our Lord and Savior or is it the power bottom in the political power structure of the religious right in America today? That's a cul-de-sac. Probably not the prettiest street for some folks who've been driving with me all along here on Walk the Earth. But I will say that it's probably an important idea to help us understand that we cannot divorce Christianity from people who presume in the name of Christianity to issue death threats to Christian authors. And because this is a female Christian author, to issue rape threats to that same author. Anything to shut her up. Because Paul, speaking to one particular woman living in Corinth in letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth, suggested that she wasn't very well educated, she was confusing people with misinformation, and therefore she shouldn't speak. But I'm going to let SoundCloud posts cover the rest of my thoughts on that topic. Sarah Bessie and I have gone there before together, her through a book, me through answering Walk the Earth 6, and a question related to her book. And deciding that that wasn't enough, and that from an inappropriate conversations perspective, I needed to talk about Mary of Magdala and a pope, who defamed her, who seemingly didn't understand what the Bible actually said and somehow created an image that has persisted in pop culture ever since. I speak about that on previous shows. For now, though, I want to answer what I think is probably a really obvious question, but an obvious question that is so uncomfortable that it wouldn't surprise me if so many people in the church uh, have never fully considered it. Never let these thoughts get into their head because the thoughts themselves seem somehow dangerous or wrong. But aren't the people who are menacing Christian female authors with rape and death threats doing so because they are defending the church? They're the people that Bessie was talking about who can't understand the difference between an attack on the church and an attack on a cancer within the church. Because, well, if you're part of the cancer, you don't really see the difference between the healthy part of the body and the unhealthy part of the body. And you can say, well, hey, Greg, are you committing a no true Scotsman fallacy by saying, oh, yeah, they're Christian men, but they're part of the cancer in the church and they're not really part of the church itself? Well, two things. First, no, I don't think I'm making that fallacy. But like I said earlier, if I do, I'm going to call it out so everyone knows that I'm there. I'm clearly on the border here. I just don't want to let us off the hook. Because if these people believe they are Christian men defending the church from those loudmouth women, then who else is going to deal with it? Richard Dawkins doesn't care about this. I mean, anybody who comes to these issues from the perspective of atheism views this as some sort of bizarre side issue. Just have it out, guys. Whatever. You know, it's just the outside world could point not, I think, to Bessie's approach of saying, let's clean house. Let's fix this. But more to the attacks against her, including the violent attacks against her, at least in writing, as evidence that, yeah, there's there's no Christ in that church. And is the answer to hide all this and brush it under the rug because it's really embarrassing to us that at times it seems obvious to the world that there's no Christ in the church? And shouldn't we be embarrassed by the fact that clearly there seems in some corners to be no Christ in the church? 
or should we repent, turn around, and change course? Well, like anybody who's been through a 12-step program will tell you, step one's acknowledging that we have a problem. And that's what I'm trying to do with the return this summer of Walk the Earth. And this question number 44, we need to acknowledge that we have a problem because people who identify as Christian, people who have power leadership positions within Christianity, if only on the political side of the spectrum, but probably within our churches as well, have told themselves that in the ends versus the means, teleological, greater good, threatening to rape and kill a Christian author is acceptable in any way whatsoever. And more to the point, more damning to the church, more damning to anybody who wishes I hadn't raised this question or who had never raised it themselves before. The fact that we're not willing to call them out, that we're not willing to have front page articles in the Christian Research Journal and Christianity Today condemning the people who are doing this and doing this in a way that's public enough that all you got to do is go willfully look for it and you'll find it. Well, that's the biggest problem the church is facing today. The cancer in the church is bigger than just patriarchy. The cancer in the church is this radical, militant, violent wing of patriarchy that even if they never actually followed through and raped anybody, think Jesus is okay with the idea of threatening to. I want to end on a more positive note, point in a direction that provides answers. And this time, instead of excerpting an email or a Facebook post, I'm going to read this in its entirety. It's not terribly long, but it gives Sarah Bessie the last word because Lord knows I think she deserves it. This, in between the April 19th hashtag and the April 20 newsletter article and the April 26th Facebook post, came out in April 21st. And here's Bessie. Deeply grateful to all the women who spoke up with their own things-only Christian women here. You have been wise and funny, brave and courageous, thoughtful and tender with one another. I cannot say enough about how healing and cathartic this has been for so many women and how enlightening for some men. Now I have a few thoughts now that it's been a couple of days. Over the years, God has messed with me on the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to embody the shalom of God's kingdom. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. And sometimes shalom is disruptive. Sometimes peacemaking makes people uncomfortable. Sometimes there are conversations we'd rather not have or Truth we would rather not acknowledge. Speaking truth to power is rarely comfortable for anyone. But conflict and discomfort can be a tool for strengthening and sharpening. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's how I see these conversations, as the faithful wounds of a friend. I have friends in my life who are faithful to speak truth to me, who call me on my crap. That's a faithful friend. The one who loves you, is committed to you, is loyal, and also speaks truth. I love the church with my whole heart, my friends. But here is the thing. We can't fix what we refuse to see. We can't heal what we refuse to admit is sick. We can't clean what we pretend isn't dirty. We can't be a candle on a lampstand, let alone a city on a hill, while harboring dark corners. And I think we can admit that this conversation has exposed a few unhealthy corners begging to be swept out. We can hold both truths. The church is beautiful and redemptive and holy, And the church has some work to do. Believe me, we can prophetically challenge like a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe we can speak truth in the mother tongue of love. Until things only Christian women hear becomes a beacon of light, freedom, affirmation, welcome, strength, love, we have work to do. 
There is an invitation in this whole thing for all of us. I pray we receive it and move towards shalom together. These are profound words. Gender has nothing to do with it either. But maybe gender plays a role in a perception that I probably didn't have before about the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. It's not that I'm not aware of it. I just wouldn't have ever put it in those terms. But the people who would rather us not talk about those things are trying to keep the peace by covering up. And the people that Bessie's trying to speak into, trying to support and energize, being positive in the midst of death threats, are people who need to be peacemakers, who need to go out and, where necessary, make changes, who know that we can't be a light shining on the hill for all to see, as Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're too busy trying to turn that light out. So it won't reveal what Jesus talked about in John chapter 3, that we're all inherently sinful. There is no light we can shine in our lives that isn't going to reveal some embarrassing things. Do we deal with it and move forward in relationship with Christ? Or do we hide it? Because the church as an institution is more important to some Christians than anything Jesus ever said or taught. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there are more examples here than what I've talked about by focusing in on just an author that I believe you've called to my attention. There's a California church that's been vandalized numerous times because they've hung a pride flag in front of their building. And Lord, I believe in all my heart that the people who have been tearing that flag down and threatening to deface the church itself do so because they're Christians who think that other Christians can't think that way. Lord, help us to take seriously what it means to love you with all of our hearts and souls and strengths and minds. Help us to recognize that the minds part of that conversation was introduced by you, Lord Jesus. In the passage where you shared the story of the great, of the Good Samaritan, that parable was preceded by acknowledging that we are called to love the Lord with all of our hearts and souls and strengths and minds. So it would help us to use that strength, to use our minds, not just to keep the peace, not just to hide the mistakes, not just to put up a good front, but to be peacemakers, to be transformative. And Lord, help us to do everything in our power to shield, defend, and protect anyone, regardless of gender, regardless of denomination, from threats of violence by angry, dismissive people, especially when those threats are coming within our house. Lord, I believe that healing the church is ultimately your work to do. We are nothing more than a scalpel, perhaps, or stitches. Help us to recognize when you need your scalpel and when you need your stitches, because healing involves removing the things which are making us unhealthy and not just locking everything down. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
by Kevin McLeod. Next on Walk the Earth, whether Jesus is the answer to disarming the violent, largely political divisions in our society. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.